Okay, hello everybody. Um, welcome uh, and thanks for coming out. Um, I'm Nick Lemon. I'm the director of Columbia Global Reports, which is the publisher of this book. Um, and this is Masha Gessen and Misha Friedman. Um, let me tell you a little bit about who we are before we start, and then um, I'll be, you know, as they say, in conversation with uh, Masha and Misha, and then we'll go to conversation with you guys. Um, on September 15th, 2015, Columbia Global Reports published its first book, so if I'm doing my math right, that's two and a half years ago. And I think this is book number 14. Um, what we do is we publish uh, relatively short sort of novella-length books about uh, what we think are significant topics in international affairs that aren't being paid a sufficient attention to by uh, the American press or the press anywhere. We're trying to uh, f publish wonderful books, uh, but also to fill a gap that's been left by some of the many, many economic cutbacks in journalism, which have particularly affected overseas coverage. So at a time of uh, increasing globalization, um, there's decreasing global coverage in much of the American press, and we're, we're trying to push back um, against that. Um, this book... Uh, I guess the seasonably, seasonally appropriate uh, question to ask about this book is um, how is this book different from all our other books? Um, and some of you will get the joke. And, so, but, uh, and the way it's different is um, all of our other books are exactly half, they're the same height, but they're exactly half the width. And but there all, are two of us. <laughs> and they're all published in paperback. And this is published in hardcover. Um, so uh, you might say, why did we decide to depart from our usual format? We're, we're trying to publish, but we're trying to be, have the sort of look of a literary quarterly or something like that, except each issue is one long article, if you will. Um, and and we're, we've broken the format for this. And the reason we did that is um, we've had a few you know, visual elements in our other books, but this was really brought to us and conceived of as a joint project between a uh, photographer and a writer and, and demanded a different format. And then to be more specific about it, for reasons that perhaps he'll reveal now, Misha prefers to take pictures in a very horizontal <laughs> format um, that sort of dictated that we publish a double-wide hardcover book. Um, so why don't we start with just telling us uh, um, about the genesis of the book. How, how, how did you all team up and, um, and get onto this project? Well, ever since we met, which was a few years ago, we've thought that a double byline, a double Masha Misha byline would be irresistible to any publisher. So it was really just a question of, um, of coming up with the project. Um, and actually, we had done some magazine work together, so we really wanted to do a larger project together that would be like, um, like a magazine project um, in the sense that uh, on a magazine story, in the old-fashioned way, the writer and the photographer work sort of together, but in parallel. 
the photographer does not illustrate the story and the writer does not write an essay or captions to accompany the, the pictures. Um, both people are telling a story and these stories are on the same topic but they're really sort of independent stories and that's what we had done um, this kind of magazine work together and we really wanted to do a project like that and we thought well if Columbia Global Reports is publishing book length articles then why aren't they publishing book length articles with pictures and so um, we are um, and if, I, if I may uh, in researching this I really couldn't find many examples of books that where photographer was not an illustrator or or where where a writer was hired to write an opening intro for a photo book so that usually has already been completed right and so I had no idea I mean we were taking a chance and I kind of want to thank you for taking a chance on this because I mean, uh, I thought it would work out, and I really want to thank uh, Claire and Charlotte, the designers for this book, because I had no idea what I wanted, in a sense. And it was like, they have, you know, their specialties covers. And I was like, well, I'm just going to give you a bunch of pictures, and let's see what happens. And they kind of, they, without them, this would not be we would not be here like they really put this together because it's kind of a unique and it's 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 uh, it's it's you know it's new in a sense that how do you put together a book that's where one or another doesn't kind of dominate perhaps stating the obvious the photos you're seeing are um, from the book However, there is one difference because they are not in the super horizontal format. Why do you like to shoot in that format? Is it for this project or in general? Uh, for this, when I can. I mean, it doesn't. This format is not. Uh, it's not the only format that I use. But I like to think that you start off with an idea, and then you look for a format, both color, black and white, square or, panora- or panoramas that matches with what you're trying to do. And here I was, I knew that I wanted, I'm going to be working in archives um, and also be outside. And I really didn't think that color, for example, was really needed and necessary, it would be a distraction. And the other thing that we had thought through and agreed on before we set out for the field was that I'm not really there to, to illustrate. I'm not there to... I'm going to be there and listen in on all the interviews and conversations that we have in the field, but I'm not here to take portraits of mm-hmm. people. Right. And this cinematic uh, format, this panoramic format kind of... You know, it's a really good format. I highly recommend it if your aim is not to photograph people. (laughs) I want to give you a little local history angle here. Um, Arguably, the greatest photo documentary project ever done originated at Columbia when an economics professor and one of his grad students went to Washington in the early 1930s to run the Farm Security Administration photo project. So there's there's... There's a, a rich history here of documentation through that, through oral history, which arguably was also invented here and goes on actively. So we're happy to be part of that tradition as well as some other traditions. Um, so 
that's getting us to uh, how you decided to work together. How did you pick this topic? So we both have an affiliation with uh, the Wallenberg Center at the University of Michigan. And Raoul Wallenberg, as I assume most people here know, was a Swedish diplomat who is credited with saving um, a large number of Jews from Nazi-occupied Budapest. Uh, and the Wallenberg Center sort of floated this idea that they might, um, they would encourage us to, to, to do a project for them. Now, they, um, yeah, Wallenberg, not only did he save uh, a bunch of Jews, but he also uh, wo- disappeared into the Gulag. And, uh, and he, uh, he was arrested in Budapest and for decades his fate was unknown. He is now assumed to have died in the Gulag, but the exact circumstances of his death are still unknown. Uh, and uh, there, are, there are several very, very good books about what happened to Raoul Wallenberg. Um, but uh, this was sort of the starting point, uh, and I wanted to write a book about memory and about, um, and it's starting at this particular point of somebody whose physical, um, whose physical death has been obscured. Because that's a very, very important part of what has happened to uh, what, what sort of um, impinges memory of the Gulag, and I wanted to go back to places that I had reported from in the 1990s when the memorialization project was beginning, and when we thought that uh, that this was going to be the beginning of this sort of, uh, of of a vast kind of reckoning that never happened. So I wanted to go back and see what had happened over the last 20 years. But the whole idea of the book was immediately derailed because um, I, uh, the first person that we talked to was a, a memory activist in St. Petersburg named Irina Fliege, who's, who's a, a character in the book. And uh, I had interviewed her many times over the years, but this time I uh, we went into her office and I said, I want to do a book about forgetting. Um, and she said, okay, well, you know, I'll talk to you, but I'm going to contradict your thesis. What is she talking about? Is she going to argue that forgetting isn't happening? Is she going to argue that it's remembering? And she said, no, it's not forgetting, because in order to have forgetting, you have to have had remembering. And what we thought was remembering in the 1990s wasn't actually remembering, because in order to remember, you have to have a separation between present and past. As long as you're living in this sort of endless present, there's no remembering, and so forgetting is not possible. And so we, that's, that's where the title of the book comes from. It's, a book, it's not a book about forgetting. It's a book about not remembering. And a point that you make in the book is uh, the gulag unlike many world historical crimes on that scale, wasn't especially taken on, if I'm getting this right, with an enemy in mind. It was an internal project, right? Right. And that may lead to that. But let, let's go back to something you said a moment ago. Um, there was, uh, in a whole bunch of ways... Um, of which this is one, at least if you were sitting in a place like New York, uh, a kind of vast sweeping optimism in the late 80s, early 90s, a sense that, you know, 
Soviet Union had collapsed, uh, the rest of the world was going to become, you know, like U.S.-style democracy. Was that ever realistic? I have, you know, in the last year I have published not one but two books saying that, no, that was such a ridiculous thing to, 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 to think. But, um, um, I mean, it's easy for us to say now. Uh, I think that... Um, I think that one thing that we can say for certain is that uh, ideas that we had about how Russia was going to deal with the past were naive and misinformed. And um, you know the, the, the peril that people were drawing, and it wasn't just Western journalists, it was certainly the memory activists in uh, post-Soviet Russia were talking about how we're going to have de- uh, decommunization the same way that, Nazi, that post-Nazi Germany had denazification, completely overlooking, among other things, the suicidal nature of Soviet terror. Which, um, which is impossible to tell stories about because how do you tell a story about how we did this to ourselves? So I, I guess if, if we were to create a standard for remembering um, that uh, could, is it possible, I don't mean to put you on the spot, to propose a kind of law for what kinds of places could you expect to meet the standard? What is the standard? And what kinds of places would you expect not to meet the standard or to resist remembering? Okay. Um. <laughs> I mean, I say this at a time when, you know, uh, my hometown of New Orleans just removed three statues. My current hometown of New York just basically declined to remove any statues. Uh, maybe I think they removed one that uh, nobody noticed. Um, what what what's the target here, ideally? I think you. I mean, the target is to engage with the past, uh, and I think that there. There are different ways of not doing that. One is to continue to live in the present. Um, one is to sort of... I don't know, Nick, you're, you're, you're asking me to do something that actually we as journalists are not qualified to do. Which is propose a solution. Yeah, and that's, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to take that bait. Okay. Um, well, let's go to uh, what we as journalists are equipped to do, which is actually describe what you found on, on you know, these are trips taking place over many years, right? To, to, to you know, for on various occasions in various parts of Russia to look for what was happening with the memory of the gulag. And, um, Tell us a little about it. I can, I'll prompt with some specifics, but let's just start. Where, where you know, it's a, it's a one of the artful things about the book is you're looking for something that isn't there, right? That, well, um, that, that's what made Misha's job so easy. <laughs> so, uh, where do you look if you're looking for either? direct evidence of or memorialization of the gulag. Right. So we were looking specifically at memorialization. Right? We weren't actually looking for, 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 for evidence. And um, the places that we went to were places where uh, we could tell stories about memorialization efforts. Um, so the first place we went was Sundarmokh, which is a 
Uh, it's the first mass execution site uh, from 1937. It was also, as it happens, the first mass execution site to have been found and the first one to have been memorialized as an execution site. And at the time, in 1997, uh, it looked like it was, it was the beginning of a vast sort of memorialization effort. And I had gone there for the opening of the, of, of the original memorial, so we went back nearly 20 years later to look at what had happened to it. Um, and what we found was not at all what I expected. Uh, so um, it's hard to imagine what a place where thousands of people have been killed looks like. But you know, it's if you if you dig ditches and you stack people in them and then you kill them and then you cover them with ground and then decades pass, the ground will sink, right? Uh, as the bodies decompose, so there are these concavities uh, in 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 the landscape. Um, and it's 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 very odd. The first time I went there, you know, it felt like you're sort of walking on the at the bottom of the sea. That's that's what the ground feels like. Um, and when the original memorial was was unveiled, it, there were a couple of sort of there was a, there were a couple of crosses. There was a, a memorial stone, another memorial stone, uh, and, and 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 the book tells the story of how they the, there were these competing stones and competing crosses. But mostly they were markers um, that that were just there. They were sort of depersonalized. But but people relatives who came to the opening were given uh, pencils so they could write on the on the markers and personalize them. And then very quickly after that, people started uh, gluing and nailing photographs to trees all around this, this site to try to personalize it. Um, but what we found when we got there was that it looked like a graveyard, like a normal graveyard. What people had done is they had created where these concavities were, not everywhere, but in a lot of places they had created these mounds and they had put crosses on them, and they had, and they had, in some places, they had even put little fences around them, uh, the way that people do at Russian cemeteries, to sort of create a normal space for mourning. And I really, you know, I, I wasn't sure how to feel about it because it is normalizing the site and 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 the mourning that happens at that site. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that's 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 what the descendants of the of the people who were killed there are creating. You mentioned the phrase memory activist. Uh, what is a memory activist? How many of these people are there? Uh, tell us about a little bit about them and what their lives are like. So in the late 1980s, um, as the Soviet Union started talking about uh, its past, uh, people all over the country started doing two things. One was they were looking at the local histories of, uh, of the Gulag. Uh, in a lot of places, it was something that everyone knew and no one ever talked about. And suddenly people started talking about it, about the fact that there was a camp here, or, there, or that this building was, uh, was um, constructed by inmates, and so on. And the other thing that started happening was that people started looking for um, documents about what had happened to their relatives. It had been possible two decades earlier, three decades earlier, actually, uh, during Khrushchev's um, thaw, when people were allowed to to ask for documentation um, on what had happened to people who had disappeared in the Gulag. And at the time, 
what they usually got were was basically were falsified documents. Now the documents they were getting more were more accurate. They weren't complete, but they were more accurate. Um, and so there's this mass movement of people looking for their stories and for local stories. And a lot of them united into organizations called memorial societies. Um, at, at its height, there were uh, many dozens of them, of them around the country. Now there are fewer. They're, um, and they were really sort of the beginning of civil society in, in Russia. And they continue to be at the forefront of civil society in Russia. So that means they are taking the brunt of the pressure from from the political crackdown that's underway um, because they represent civil society. Um, But also there have been personal transformations, and we document one of those personal transformations in in, in the book. Uh, One of the people that we want to see was a woman whom I'd met in 1999 in Kalima. She was, she was this geologist who had become a memory activist. She'd been at it when I first met her. She'd been at it for more than 10 years. She was trying to create a memorial at the site of one of the most brutal camps um, in, in the Gulag, the Butuguchag, which had been a uranium mine. Um, she had created a museum. And this time we went to see her. She was still there. She was in her late 70s now. Um, she took us to the site. We, we hiked around the site. We, we came back. And, and on the way back to the campfire, um, she said to me, I see you don't like Putin. And I thought it was a joke. So I said, yeah, it's mutual. And she said, well, I like him. And I said, really? She said, yeah, I'm tired of being in the minority. So now I like him. <laughs> and... Um, and it was fascinating to see what had happened because she hadn't given up her life's work, right? Uh, but she changed the angle uh, of it, and and um, and it's really representative of what's happened to memory because what's happened is not that like um, it's not an easy story of glorifying the gulag. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a much more difficult story of just turning memory into mush. Well, since you mentioned Putin, in what way does he make a difference to this situation? That is, if, if, if Russia had a different head of state, is it possible that you'd be telling a different story? Yes, I think it would be extremely likely that I'd be telling a different story. I mean, Putin has, um, uh, has trafficked primarily in Soviet nostalgia, And central to that nostalgia is the myth of World War II, and central to that myth is Joseph Stalin, and the glorification, sort of the the reinstatement of Stalin uh, is impossible without obscuring the memory of the Gulag. So uh, some conceivable other head of state who we may never see uh, might be less invested in, in this project of, of sort of erasure? You're doing this thing again. I'm not, you know, I don't know. Okay, you just I, tell us what's <laughs> on the ground. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, Misha, uh, there's a couple of places that, that I'd like you to talk about that you, you know, you all visited in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one is Perm 36. Mm-hmm. So uh, both of you, could you all talk about that? What is Perm 36? Um, just, just, just to add on Memorial, one of the, I mean, one, one of the things that I found challenging as a as a journalist, as a photographer, was 
you know, when you spend a lot of time, and we were lucky, you know, like with Irina, with her colleague who accompanied us to Sandermoch, some of the other people, because, you know, like on one hand, you discover by being around, being with them, details that you could never pick out on a one or two day visit. On the other hand, the the proximity is very strange because you're they talk about the dead in, pre, in almost present tense, and it's it's little like it's 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 little overwhelming. It's it's hard to because you know they they started their work in the late ages. They met descendants of some of these people. They have f- complete files on the people who were executed, and you're there at these sites. And they speak about, like in present tense, about people who are directly beneath you. Yeah. And it's 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 really it's challenging to kind of be there, and then to kind of keep saying to yourself, well, what what like how do I stay focused? Because it's really easy to get lost in these stories, and how do I? Remain focused without losing empathy, without, without uh, kind of, you know, like I, I still want to tell, like I want to focus on what is what is key here, like in the conversations that Masha and I are having with them, uh, what is key here and what is, but what, how do I, how do I, sh- how do I show that without it becoming kind of a, you know, a, you know, like. And, and a story that has been told about Gulag. Gulag is bad, these are the victims, how do I go beyond that? And that was kind of one challenge. In a place like, like finding the distance as a photographer or just as a person, at the same time in places like in, in PRM 36. Tell uh, us what that is. Right. Uh, uh, Masha. <laughs> yeah. So Perm 36 is actually a unique uh, site because, you know, the Gulag was not a place. Uh, it was, and it wasn't even uh, an agglomeration of places. It was a function. And so, um, so for example, a camp, uh, if you look at the, at the map of the Gulag, you will often see that the same name pops up all over the place. Because the same camp might deplete a mine and then move 100 miles over to a different mine and, can, and maintain the same, uh, the, the same name, which was a, way, it was a way of further dehumanizing the whole enterprise. These were not people, and they, these weren't even places. It was all function. So um, the, the gulag sites were usually constructed very, very shoddily, and when they were abandoned, they would just disappear. All that would be left was barbed wire. Um, but Perm 36 was a Gulag camp that was almost immediately after it stopped being a Gulag camp, it was converted into sort of a regular prison and then became a political uh, prison camp and functioned as a political prison camp up until the, the late 1980s. And then in the early 90s, before it fell into total disrepair, it was discovered by local historians who reconstructed it meticulously and, to my mind, a little creepily, uh, including uh, they re-created uh, re, uh, the timber production that was there mm-hmm. to both reconstruct the camp uh, and to make money to maintain the museum. And then in 2012, it was taken over by the state. 
And again, what what I expected to see when we got there, uh, judging from the social media posts that I had seen, was a museum of the gulag that glorified the gulag. But that's not what we found. What we found was a cacophony. And um, when uh, one of the places that uh, one of the exhibits was actually intact, they had left it exactly the way that it was uh, under the old regime, uh, the, the sort of the, the dissident regime. But the the tour was different. So we walk in, and uh, and it's, it's just this barracks with the pictures of some of the well-known dissidents who had served time in this prison camp. And she, then the tour guide pointed to the first one, Sergei Kovalev, and she said, well, the outstanding geneticist Sergei Kovalev spent time here. Uh, and it was clear that this was, a, this was a, a remarkable and worthy place because someone so dignified had, uh, um, had actually graced the premises. Um, and, um, you know, it was... Um, when we left, it wasn't like we were left with a story of how great this place was. It, and it wasn't like we were left with a story that had been told there before, which was a, a comprehensive story of the Gulag. Um, it was that we were left with no story. We had been overwhelmed with, with fragments of, of weird and contradictory information. Yeah, yeah. So you, the con- for me, the contrast to being to working with you know with archives and you know in Kalama in Perm, you you see stones, you see barracks, you see barbed wire, but there's like almost no sign of there's no sign of humanity, no signs of of the prisoners themselves, and so there you almost have like the opposite experience where you look through this landscape and you look for signs of you know you will you you and there are not 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 that many because in one particular challenge in Perm was okay okay it's a it's a museum but it's someone else's museum someone so what is my role here like what what is my takeaway from someone else's work I can't just like take a picture of someone else's work or idea of what a museum looks like and just present it as, well, this is my work. Like, my, the idea is, like, how do I, again, focus and try to look for, like, what is really pertinent and, you know, in this place and, and relevant to what we're trying to, to the question that we're trying to answer. Uh, and the last place I want to cover is your, is your trips to the far east of Russia. And could you talk a little about what you found there? Um, yeah, I mean, it was this was my first time in Kalama, and my first impression was that you don't really need to go to Mars. Like that is, I mean, just and you do get this this and this feel that like well, it wasn't it was even before Bolsheviks that the czars used distance as form of punishment, like separating you from. From, from where you were, from where your relatives live, and it's really far, and it's really remote, and uh, it's, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we had a fun reporting experience there. We, um, so we flew to Magadan, uh, which is the, the, the big city in, in this remote region, and then we drove out from Magadan for um, about four hours to this little town of Ustomchuk, where we were supposed to meet our memory activist to then go on to the camps. 
And as we were pulling into town, I was trying to call her, and I couldn't get the, the a connection, so I was using my phone, I used the driver's phone. Then we pulled into a store, I asked to use their phone, and I still couldn't get through to her. And then the police car pulled up, and they took us into custody, and they took us to this uh, to, uh, to the police station, which is also the secret police uh, building in in, um, in this town. And she was there, our memory activist, and her phone had been turned off in the morning, and had come and gotten her. Uh, and it was all it was all very silly. It wasn't like a scary sort of detention experience, uh, but it was also very telling that um, that they had been on high alert because we had checked into the hotel in Magadan, uh, and and they were expecting us in this town, and they they felt it was important to keep track of our reporting on this camp that shut down half a century ago. But in, uh, one, one little detail that I just remembered, because uh, maybe Masha has more experience being in these situations than I do, uh, but one thing that when we met the local policeman who and our guide was with him, he asked us to come upstairs for a tea or for a chat and I, I was remember I, I wasn't sure like what was going to happen next and I was very impressed with Masha just like nope I'm not going up we're having this conversation outside the precinct I was much nicer about it I said this is a very nice place where she's but, but, but it was very like I'm not if we're not under arrest I'm not going anywhere like and he was like fine and I think that saved us that saved us time because that would have, yeah, that was good. I was, I wasn't, yeah. Is 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 there any element in in Russia that actually celebrates the Gulag, or is it more of a sort of erasure model? Oh no, absolutely. There's um, there are people who celebrate the Gulag, and um, and you know, I mean, Stalin consistently um, takes second place in, and some actually this year I think he took first place in the. Uh, biannual greatest man who ever lived survey. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I read your little review of Death of Stalin, which I also loved. And in that movie, I don't know if any of you have seen, highly recommended, they show incredible brutality and then he dies and people are lined up sobbing for miles to go to the funeral and see his body for a second. So, um, in a sense, that's that's a lot less shocking than what happens now, three generations later. Right, maybe so. So we're going to go to questions from, from the audience. Uh, there is a mic here, so I want you to come to the mic. Before we do, I'm going to ask you one more normative question that you're going to hate. Um, so much of this sort of memory and memorialization debate around the world is is around the sort of flip of what you're writing about. That is something we now regard as 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 terrible, you know, like the gulag, maybe not that bad, is is uh, was celebrated um, through, you know, it's like the statue of Cecil Rhodes in, in, at Oxford and, and the Confederate statues in the U.S. and so on. Um, what are we supposed to, so so it, not the erasure model, but the, the celebration that we now think of as misplaced model, what, are we, what should we do about that? Um, actually, I do have an answer for okay, that. Okay, uh, good. And, um, <laughs> 
and, you know, I mean, there's there's a, the city of Berlin, which has literally raised it to an art form, the sort of the problematizing something that is there without erasing it. Uh, and there are lots of ways to do that. Yeah, I agree. There was a wonderful essay that, that by Marina Warner in an obscure art magazine that sort of proposed that, that, that instead of taking them away, which is maybe another form of eraser, you just keep adding and accreting different memories at different times to them. Um, and and so I'm I'm uh, I'm on your side. Okay, uh, let me ask you one more question, Misha. The, flashing on the screen, uh, among the other scenes, are these little portraits. What are those? They are from uh, they're mugshots of people uh, in the memorial archives uh, in, from Saint Petersburg. So the uh, yeah, that's okay. uh, short answer. <laughs> Um, okay, well, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much. And it's in the back. <laughs>